If you turn your Bibles to Psalm 92, it is a great privilege to open the Word of God with you this morning. As many of you received, I'm sure, the prayer request for our pastor, Pat Evendroth. His family's over here to my left and your right and had complications with the eye, and that becomes very pivotal in being able to, to study and, and teach and so forth. And It was a good opportunity for our family to gather around and have each of the children pray, and these are just great opportunities as we even go through the prayer sheet and pray for individuals who need and glory in the gospel. So it's my opportunity to step in with Psalm 92 and we'll continue with Romans in the weeks to come. Trust that you've made your way there. In the Western world, it is difficult for us to imagine, to understand the weight of death, at least That's how it would have been understood 200, maybe 300 years ago. They didn't have the same nursing care as we do today. For many of the children then, they would have understood death as families gathered to care for their loved ones in their last hour and then passing away and gathering the friends and family to celebrate the life and to mourn death. The funerals would have been done in the context of the home. A child would have understood the weight of death. In our culture today, we, we put it behind the veil and we dress up the dead to look young and with vigor and, and youth. So for us, we, we struggle to try to communicate to our children the inevitableness of, of death. I was in Genesis 5 with my children in devotions this week. We've been setting aside time just to read through the scriptures and one of my sons said, it's all about death. Death, 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 and that is the point. Sin and the curse of sin has brought death into our world, and to be for certain, I told them, you will die. I bring up Malawi, Africa, because we've spent some time doing missions there and, and, and ministering. Um, in that context, the brevity of life is readily seen in Malawi, Africa, where the average life expectancy is between 37 and 41 years of age, infant mortality, 95 deaths to 1,000 births, 15 to 20% have HIV or, or AIDS. And yet we, we don't want to be ignorant about the fact that even across the world today, at this moment, in every minute that passes by, 100 people die. 100. If I could see that clock right now in the hand, we would just take a minute to pause and reflect on 100 deaths. Sometimes silence is deafening. In Psalm 92, the Spirit of God puts before us eternity and the brevity of life, but intends to promote the glory and goodness of God in the midst of this short, frail, feeble life that is passing away. So in this text, we will see four compelling truths. They're weighty. They they are compelling. They compel us to look to God And it motivates declarative praise, declarative praise in view of eternity, in view of eternity. Four compelling truths that motivate declarative praise in view of eternity. We'll see the goodness of God's name in verse 1, the faithfulness of God's character, verses 2 through 3, the righteousness of God's work in verses 4 through 9, and the sustenance of God's worship, worshiping God. 
in 10 through 15. Let's look at the first compelling truth as we walk through this text to be motivated to declare praise, to declare the character of God. The first compelling truth is the goodness of God's name. The goodness of God's name. Look with me at verse 1. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. Verse 2. Here's our connecting, our purpose statement. To declare, to promote your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. Good. That's how he begins. He's going to talk about the wicked that sprout up like grass and the evildoers flourish and then they're wiped away. And then the godly, how they grow old and yet they're strengthened because of their vitality with God, drawing life from the eternal God. He doesn't begin there with the, the difficulties of understanding the burdens of life and how the wicked flourish and how the righteous go through agony in life and yet flourish spiritually and internally. He doesn't start there. He starts with the goodness of God. It is good, or literally good to give thanks to the Lord. The connection is obvious in verse 1. This value is in the Lord, Yahweh. Yahweh emphasizes, it's his uh, name that emphasizes the fact that God is self-existent, independent, and yet he is a covenant-keeping God. He's the, the God that is not only far above us, we depend upon him for life and being, but the God who has stepped down into time to bring us into a relationship with himself. That's how we see his name used in the context of Genesis 15, where God establishes a covenant, Yahweh establishing a covenant with Abraham that runs us all the way to the cross. The psalmist says, it is good. There is great value and delight and pleasure in throwing back to God the weightiness of His name and praising Him, the One who is most high, the One who is lifted up. As Psalm 16.2 says, the psalmist recognizes this, I have no good apart from you. Can we say that? I have no good apart from you. The good of God in thanks. This thanks then is a spiritual response to the self-existent one. To the one who is the beginning and the end. The salvation covenant keeper. The word thanks literally means to throw back to him. So as we meditate and ruminate and mull over the greatness of our God, the self-existent one who has stepped into time and brought us into a, a saving relationship with him, we throw back, cast back to him great thanks and praise. We breathe in. We draw in the, the glory of God as we meditate upon him through his word and we exhale, we breathe out. Praise and thanks. You and I are beings that are made to worship. We love to praise. We see our children as they go out and hit that particular shot or make that diving catch and they have to come running in and bring us outside and replay and review the moment, recapture it. They find great joy when we rejoice with them. We see in Psalm 92, verse 1 and 2, that we were made to meditate on, replay, review, and revisit the glory of our God. 
He is most high. Self-existent one. Notice also there in verse 1. Good to give thanks to the Lord to sing praises to your name, O Most High. We see name and Lord paralleled here. The goodness of meditating upon his name. Now, we often think of name in the context of, I just named my child Michael. <laughs> and it becomes very flippant in our culture. Some of us have spent time to, to really think through a name and its meaning, to identify a person. When we talk about the name of God, we see it in these kind of contexts, describing God's character, God's attributes. Therefore, it's paralleled with the fact that he is Yahweh, the, the self-existent one, the, the one who has brought us into a covenant relationship with himself. We're then delighting in all that God is for us as the covenant-keeping God, the self-existent one who has bound us into a relationship with himself so that all of his infinite attributes and character are for us, for his glory, for his name's sake, the glory of depending upon his name. Now, this rich understanding of God's name with his character, becomes a foundation for the gospel of John in appealing to the name of God, the name of Christ. I would have you turn to John chapter 12, verses 27 through 28. Make a couple connections here that run us straight to the cross. God has promoted the glory of his name in and through the personal work of Jesus Christ. As the God-man, Christ has put the glory of God on display by acting on behalf of sinners, his perfect obedience, exalting God's righteousness. His wrath-bearing death has glorified God's justice. And so God's name is, is put on display through the person and work of Jesus Christ. In John 12, verse 27, Jesus is going to the hour. John talks much about the hour has not yet come. Jesus talks about that in the context of the Gospel of John. And finally, we see the hour has come, and we begin to realize it's the hour of the cross, the final obedience of Christ in His work. Verse 27, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Look at 28. Don't miss it. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. There at the cross, this hour, this is the purpose. What purpose? As Romans 3.25 says, to demonstrate his righteousness. Which, by the way, Psalm 92 will end with declaring the righteousness and uprightness of God in worship. The righteousness of God, his character is put on display at the cross. His name is lifted high. Now, we respond in light of his name. If you turn with me to John 14, this affects our praise, our prayer, our supplication. John 14, verses, we'll start with verse 10. We're going to see the mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son, and the Son and the Father, underlining that our God is one, yet eternally existing in three persons. And this is the basis for the Father glorifying the name of the Son, and the Son in His work glorifying the name of the Father to the glory of God. Verse 10, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The unity and yet distinction. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. 
Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. He's talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit that's going to be sent out. In John 14, he'll underline that in the next few verses. The Spirit of God will promote the glory of Christ. Verse 13, here's where we want to camp. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. We've already seen in John 12 that the purpose of the cross is to exalt high the glorious name of God. Jesus now says, in light of the unity between the Father and the Son, that we as believers ask according to his name. I was in this text, it's probably been about six months now with my children. And I asked them, what does it mean to pray in his name. Well, it's certainly not to ask whatever I want and God's going to give it to me. It is to ask for the glory of Christ, to ask that he would be promoted and that the Father will answer. For he loves his Son and puts his glory on display and the Son loves the Father and puts his glory on display. The beautiful work of Christ on the cross. So whatever trial or difficulty... Indeed, we can ask as Paul did, Lord, if it be your will, take it away. But we're ultimately, ultimately praying, Lord, put Christ on display and the Father will answer that prayer. That's his goal. That's the purpose. And the cross promoted to our hearts helps us to have that purpose in our lives as well. So if you go back with me to Psalm 92, this becomes such a rich background for an understanding name Name paralleled with Yahweh, the self-existent one, the covenant-keeping God, as we're going to see in verse 2, the one who declares his steadfast love. It's redemptive terminology that is in that word, steadfast love. So that we as believers, we put the name of God on display. We glory in him. We praise him through and in and by Christ. That's where John took us. So when the mind and affections are disconnected and we come here and we sing, but our minds are distracted, wandering in our service, we feel weak and frail. I just feel I can't serve and minister because I need to be ministered to. Maybe it's because we're focused on how great we are. And I'm a finite person. I'm weak. I'm going to die. I'm decaying. Who am I to bring praise to myself? And so we come to the word of God and He promotes through the cross His great glory in His name and fuels our praise and our thanks to Him. This indeed is good. He has given us Himself for His glory. The goodness of God's name. Second compelling truth. The faithfulness of God's character. Remember, it's in view of eternity. We're looking at our great glorious God And instead of putting all of our energy and resources into a life that is passing away, we're looking with respect to eternity in view of how great our God is and what He has accomplished. He's given us Himself, ultimately through Jesus Christ, for His glory. And so we find great good in His name, but we also find that His character is faithful, the faithfulness of God's character. Look with me at verse 2. Here's the purpose statement as we reflect on the goodness and value and we delight in His name and our praise is fueled to exalt Him. 
verse 2, to declare, to promote, to bring to light, to show forth, to exhibit. What? Your steadfast love in the morning, your faithfulness by night. And now that's wrapped in the talents and abilities as well in verse 3. To the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. He says, as I'm meditating, ruminating in the refulgence of the glory of God in His name, and we've looked at the cross and the glory of Christ there, what happens is I emit and promote the steadfast love of God in the morning and His faithfulness by night. Now this word is hesed, is a, is a tough one for translators to translate. So if you put out the NIV and the ESV and the NAS and the King James, you'll find uh, covenant mercy, mercy, covenant love, loving kindness, steadfast love. It's the idea of an enduring love. And it is so because of verse 1. This steadfast or covenant love is, is, is intimately connected to God's name, His character. His character stands behind this love. It's used in context of redemption. I want you to see this. If you turn with me to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. We're going to see a prayer of David as he grasps that God's forgiveness and wiping out of transgressions comes out of his loving kindness. Remember, that loving kindness is redemptive terminology. It's anchored to his character. He himself has stepped into time and bought redeemed, purchased, and established a covenant relationship with His people. Verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. That's the covenant mercy, covenant love, enduring love that we're talking about here. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I declare you are right, God. You're vindicated. I'm the transgressor. But according to your steadfast love, have mercy, deal with my Sin. If we had time to unfold the loving kindness of God, we would see it's akin to passages like Romans 5 8. You know, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. Out of his love, he has extended redemption, a substitute, a purchase out of the slave market of sin. We see then similar terminology to that which the New Testament uses. You may have to rewind back to the audio to catch up on some of these references I'm going to give to you, but that just helps us understand a little bit more of the fullness of this loving kindness. Now that we understand it's redemptive in its nature, sealed by the name of God, loving kindness in Psalm 13.5 is said to be trusted in. Psalm 31.7, rejoiced in. Psalm 33.18, hoped in. Psalm 48, 9, thought upon. Now we see this idea of hope, faith, love in the New Testament. Here we have it connected intimately with this redemptive word, this covenant love, steadfast love. God's loving kindness is said to be abundant and plenteous. Psalm 86, 5. Get this, as great as the heavens, Psalm 57, 10. Everlasting, Psalm 105. Everlasting. That's something you would say about God's character. 
Ah, indeed, that is his covenant love. He has brought us into a relationship with himself in salvation. It is backed up by his own name and his character. Ah, that's John 12, John 14. It's Christ securing us in himself. And these rich words unfold are unfolded before our eyes, particularly in the crosswork of Jesus Christ. Going back to Psalm 92, we find that this loving kindness, this covenant love, this redemptive love, is connected with faithfulness to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. God's faithfulness and love then are bound together. We may say it this way. God is faithful to us because he has secured us with his loving kindness. Because of his loving kindness, he has secured us in himself for his own glory and praise. So he has bound us with his faithfulness because of his loving kindness. It's that God is for us, for his glory. I think the psalmist intentionally uses these pictures of coming into the morning. He's moved through the terror of the night, the trials and difficulty, the threat upon life. For us, we've been a little more secure in the last 100 years about sleeping through the night, locking our doors. Not so for the ancient Hebrews. They come through the night and the sun's rays come over the horizon and they're rejoicing in the loving kindness of God that has brought them through the night. And His faithfulness in the terror of the night. God is faithful. I want you to see this loving kindness and faithfulness at work in Jeremiah's life. If you go with me to uh, Jeremiah, I'm sorry, Lamentations, you're going to go Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. I'm going to build a little bit of context for you. God in Jeremiah chapter 1 had told Jeremiah he's going to preach to the nations and to Israel, but they're not going to hear you. They're going to reject you. You're going to go through trials. And this is my call upon your life, Jeremiah. Jeremiah's been saying the Babylonians are coming, they're coming, you've rejected God, you've promoted your idolatry and your harlotry, judgment is coming. And when it comes and the city's raised to the ground, Jeremiah doesn't say, aha, I told you so. He's weeping and he's mourning. Look with me at Lamentations 1 verse 16. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Talking about Israel in verse 19, I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. The elders and priests of Israel had led them into idolatry, false alliances. And when their time of judgment had come, the idols didn't come through. Their foreign nations that they respected and loved and wanted to be like didn't pull through. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 2. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. Verse 5. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. Verse 7. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. There's no provision now for Israel. Their time, their doom has come. Verse 17. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word. 
You want to see the travesty of the condition of Israel? Look at verse 20. Look, O Lord, and see with whom have you dealt thus? Should woman eat the fruit of their womb and children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young woman and my young men have fallen by the sword. It is bleak, dark. Israel has been turned over to their own sin. Woman eating their own offspring, their own children to survive in the siege. Chapter 3. This is taking building a foundation for his recognition of the loving kindness of God. And I just want to build that for you so you see the weight of this. 3 verse 4. He has made my flesh, my skin waste away. He's broken my bones. And now we're going to run right to the finish race here. Verse 13. Chapter 3. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Lord, this is the seed. The seed is to come through your people. It's been promised since the the days of Adam and Eve, and Abraham's been looking for the seed. But now, where's the city? Where are the people? Hope is gone. He doesn't find hope in the restoration of Jerusalem, although that will come about. Where's his hope? Verse 21. But this I call to mind. Therefore, I have hope. What? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. The circumstance hasn't changed. The mothers have been eating their children. The city's wiped out. What hope? The covenant love of the Lord has bound His faithfulness for the sake of His people so that in verse 24, He can say, the Lord is my portion. He's my inheritance. He is my good. There is nothing in this world that can compare or bring hope except God who has bound Himself to us for His glory because of His redemptive love. For His name's sake. Psalm 92. Was Jeremiah reading Psalm 92? We've reflected a a hymn that talks about great is your faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. Ah, the psalmist in Psalm 92 says, As I dwell on your name, I declare your loving kindness, your work of redemption. Bound us to yourself in salvation. There's a third compelling truth. We've seen the goodness of God's name and the faithfulness of God's character and rivet our eyes upon our great God and it motivates declarative praise in view of eternity. We've laid the foundation. Now we're going to begin to move steadily through the text, so we'll have to keep up. Number three, the righteousness of God's work. The righteousness of God's work, verses four through nine. Look at verse four. For you, O Lord, 
have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. We look at this text and we go, verse 5, your thoughts, your purposes, your plans, they're they're deep. They're impenetrable. I, I can't grasp the fullness of your plan, Lord. What's so deep that the wicked put all their energies into things that are fading away and it only leads to destruction. This is God's righteousness to turn the wicked over to their own sin to destroy them. He is not responsible for sin and yet he exalts his justice by turning the wicked over to the destructiveness of their own sin. Look with me at Psalm 17. This becomes one of those passages that pop out at you as you're reading through the Psalms. Psalm 17, verse 13. Here we see these deep purposes of God. Remember, Asaph was plagued by this. How come the wicked seem to prosper? They flourish. And yet the, uh, the believer is going through some trials in life and difficulties. How, I don't understand your purposes, Lord. Ah, indeed. It's declaring a righteous work. Psalm 17, verse 13. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. So you see the context. Verse 14. From men by your hand, O Lord. From men of the world whose portion, their inheritance is in this life. You, notice it's God, fill their womb with treasure. They're satisfied with children. They leave their abundance to their infants. They're satisfied with baby trinkets. The believer, look with me at verse 15. Where's the believer's satisfaction? As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. God has given himself to us through the work of his son for his glory. But the wicked have been turned over to baby trinkets. Their own finite purposes and goals in life that are decaying and scattering underneath them. And in the end, destruction. But the believer has been secured in the righteous work of God in Christ to exalt his name. This indeed is a mystery to us. Notice the character of the wicked. It would be a warning to us of the frailty and futility of sin. Verse 6, the stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this. Stupid is translated senseless in the New American Standard. It's the Hebrew word ba'ar. And it's, I, I say that because it's used in the context of a brute, an animal, a beast, a cattle. This person is like an animal, driven by fleshly desires, as Jude says, devoid of the Holy Spirit, without the life of God. They have no intimate relationship with God, the ultimate good. He pours all of his energies and time into that which has no eternal value. He cares only for himself. Food, clothing, shelter, physical protection. His motto is the five senses. 
If it feels good, do it. For those of you who have animals, we get quite the depiction that the Holy Spirit is trying to impress upon our hearts. I have two dogs. They don't understand the value of things. Even their bones are ripping apart, shredding. But with my uh, German shepherd, we'll tuck him away into his little kennel and give him a blanket for the night. And you know what he does with that blanket? Warms himself up, sees the value of it, preserves it for tomorrow? No, he rips it up in shreds and eats it. <laughs> Doesn't understand the value. If we let them around the house, running around, they'd destroy everything. The wicked, apart from God's grace, are in such a condition. He calls them a fool, folly, stupid. Their thoughts are folly. They're devoid of God. They live with self as the end, and self will have its end. Unless we all too readily say them and they remember that we, apart from God's grace, were there too. In Northridge, California, while I was going to school, we lived in a compound. We call it the seminary compound. We had a lot of uh, seminary students that, that stayed there and uh, enjoyed fellowship with one another. Well, there's a particular moment when uh, my wife's parents decided to, to come up for a vacation and visit us in Northridge, California. And every time they came, something would happen. <laughs> this case, we're unloading their truck, and some car goes flying up the street, crashes into a pole, and, kid you not, blows up. It's on fire. I'd never seen that before. So all of us, you know, this little compound, are running out there to look at this thing, and we're all gathered around looking for the victim. And where is he? What happened? Some guy's telling the story. Yeah, it, it blew up, and I dragged the guy out. And I'm like, well, where's the guy, <laughs> you know? I'm looking around, I look over my shoulder, and here's this guy, uh, sooty, uh, darkened by the ash of the, the crash, peering over. I could tell he was drunk and didn't have a clue what was going on. He, too, was listening in for information of what happened. And I thought, wow, <laughs> he's trying to figure things out. Well, there's no accident that a term for brute is used in this context. Here God is put on display the full radiance of His glory in the person and work of Jesus Christ, His justice, His grace, His mercy, His love. He's demonstrated His righteousness. And the world can't see it, can't behold the glory of Christ. But not so for the believer who's been visited with God's grace. Look at the contrast between 7 and 8 through 9. That though the wicked sprouted like grass and all evildoers flourish, and they look at that and think, oh, meaning in life. Here's my joy. Here's my completion. Here's my fulfillment. They are doomed to destruction forever. Ultimate destruction. An eternal destruction. Eternal judgment. It's forever. But not so with God. I want to be anchored in God. Verse 8. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. That's, that's who I want to be with. That's my portion and in inheritance. Is it not yours? God's exaltation and glory. He is my portion. For behold your enemies, O Lord. For behold your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. And is that not what happens when we pour our life into the things of this world? Everything that we touch just disperses and scatters. And we build our life around relationships and we lose them. And a loved one that's dear to us and they die and pass away. And everything we put our trust in is scattered, scattered, scattered. But the Lord, He is on high forever. And exalted forever. 
There's a fourth compelling truth. Sustenance of God's worship. The sustenance of God's worship, that is, is we're worshiping God in the context of righteousness, His righteousness. We thrive and grow. We're sustained. He saves in righteousness. He has justified us in His righteousness through faith. Believers are protected in righteousness and sustained in this worship in light of His righteousness. There's a soil here. I want you to drop down to verse 12, if you would, with me. Verse 12 and 13. Notice the context of growth and vitality. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. You see, in the house of God, the law was brought forth. In the house of God, the sacrifices were offered that point ultimately to, to Christ as the sacrifice. In the house of God, people gathered to praise the Lord. In the house of God, the glory of God's Shekinah presence, His glory, was manifested. And He says we've been planted there, rooted, grounded in the context of worship. And, verse 13, they flourish in this context of worship in the courts of our God. Planted, grounded, and there we're sustained. And we we grow as we worship Him. For what? Well, verse 15 Helps us understand the fruit of this worship to declare that the Lord is upright. We are people who worship God for His righteousness. Praise Him for His righteousness. The glory in His righteousness. Christ has stepped into time and obeyed perfectly for us and credited that righteousness to our account through faith so that we can say He is our righteousness. And He exalted the justice of God and receiving upon Himself the condemnation we deserve, eternal condemnation. Eternal judgment. We worship in the context of righteousness, His righteousness. We glory in Christ, making no provision for the flesh. Well, look at it with me again. So the soil we've noted is worship, and it's in the context of His righteousness. Notice the fruit of this righteousness, this worship that we see here. Look with me again in verse 15. To declare that the Lord is upright, He's my rock, there is no unrighteousness in Him. That's the fruit that we bear in this context of worship. There is vitality of this worship. Look with me at verse 10. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You've poured over me fresh oil. Oil is used in the context of perfume, fragrant aroma, medicine, and to anoint a king. Saying, you've exalted me. Raised me up for God's sake, for his name. There's great victory. Look with me at verse 11. This is the vitality of this context of worship. Verse 11. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. Who understands in the end, although the wicked flourish, but they're like grass that passes away, there is an end. And the believer, by God's grace, will have victory or stand in the end. There's a flourishing in this context of worship. Again, verse 12, the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Lebanon trees were very regal trees, massive along their trunks and expansive at their branches. The idea is that the, the, the righteous, the godly, have been credited with the righteousness of God Ultimately, in Christ, they are drawing life and vitality from this eternal God 
Notice their fruitfulness in verse 14. They still, the idea is continuance, perpetually, bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. So while life is battering them, the trials and difficulties and persecutions and sufferings, and they're growing old in age, they're full of life and vitality. For what purpose? Verse 15 this whole psalm is, it starts with the name of God, His loving kindness, His, His saving work of redemption, and runs us all the way to verse 15 to declare, to promote, to unveil that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in Him. There's the fruit of worship. Declaration of God's righteousness. An exaltation of His name. I'm going to have the men prepare the elements for us at this time. And as we do, I want to leave you with a quote from a man named Octavius Winslow, who is a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon. He talks about death. I think he puts it into perspective. There is approaching a period, ah, how it speeds, which will be the most solemn and severe, yet the sweetest and truest test of the sustaining soothing power of Christ's righteousness and the experience of his saints. The last sickness and the closing scene of life. Imagine the moment to have arrived. Everything is failing, heart and strength failing, mental power failing, medical skill failing, human affection and sympathy failing. The film of death is on the eye and the invisible realities of the spirit world are unveiling to the mental view. You are too weak to conceive a thought. Too low to breathe a word. You cannot now aver your faith in an elaborate creed. And you have no profound experience or ecstatic emotions or heavenly visions to describe. One brief but all emphatic, all expressive sentence embodies the amount of all that you now know and believe and feel. It is the profession of your faith, the sum of your experience, the ground of your hope. Christ is precious to my soul. He concludes with Psalm 73, In thy presence is fullness of joy, and at thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. We will all enter, stand before those gates of death as they are swinging open, and the last breath is ready to be drawn. Is Christ your hope? Is he your righteousness? We are going to take some time to promote the glory of Christ and symbols, pictures that God has given for us. In John 6, Jesus uses depictions of food to describe faith as we draw life from the food that we eat. It's an analogy of faith that draws life from Christ, as John 15 says, we abide in Him as the branch to the vine. And so our righteousness is Him. Our obedience, Christ. Punishment that we deserve, Christ secured for us, satisfying God's wrath. And so even as we partake, it's a, a picture as the body of Christ gathered together promoting Jesus Christ and saying He is everything. 1 Corinthians 11 gives us a, a warning that if you're in sin, you're harboring sin, this is not the time to partake and proclaim His work at this time, but lest you reap judgment upon yourself, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, but it is the time to confess your sin, to agree with God about it. 
and exalt in Jesus Christ personally as you meditate. But for those who are believers, this is an open table. Whether you're visiting us or not, you're welcome to join in. We are proclaiming Jesus Christ and his work for us. So as the men come forward, take some time to meditate on the glory of Christ, on his name, confess sin, glory in the cross, and we will enjoy a time of fellowship together around the Lord's Supper.